0: If you started, if you started, I can't hear you, right. Are you on. Um, all right. So, yeah. we <laughs> can did it again. Yeah, no, I just, just, just calm down. No, I'm just, no, I'm just putting it in place. I know. That's, that's the only reason. Oh, we haven't even started yet. Just have you, have you, have you started recording? Okay. I have started recording. Well, but, don't do so. that. Don't
1: fucking touch Yeah,
0: but we're just recording a whole pile of shit at the moment.
1: All right. Well, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll, let's let's start with that. Uh, Alex has a habit of uh, touching the microphone. It's a it's an impulsive particular here I mean, yeah, it it no, I'm yes. to put it,
0: No, no, it's because I'm trying to put it in place. I'm just I want it to be perfectly in place. That's why I do it.
1: All right, so all right, okay, like, That's Well, right. so Alex uh, had this idea to uh, to to have a podcast. Apparently, yes. No, it was it was a
0: mutual act of genius on both our parts.
1: Mm-hmm. And you know it's popular these days, and it's also it's it's something something a, a nice space for us perhaps to talk about things that we we talk about in our day to day lives that we don't get an opportunity to talk about on, on indie media on the on the radio program that we both you know contribute to, and we've known each other for some time. And we thought we well, let's let's do it. Let's see if we've got something to say. See if uh, we've got anything worthwhile to contribute.
0: Yeah, hoping for this to be a bit more of a freewheeling format, uh, a platform for a free exchange of, of ideas and views that we'd like mm. to think are pretty important that we perhaps don't get uh, the scope for or the capacity to discuss at length and in detail on the Indie Media Show. As much as we love the Indie Media Show, it's not a competing platform. It, you can think of it as a, a supplementary or complementary platform. Mm, uh, an experimental platform, we'll see where it goes. Mm. and It's partly... Uh, See if it's any good.
1: It might not see if be any, it's good. any good. And Man. yeah,
0: you could say partly conceding to fashion and the vogue that is podcasting I mean, I think that whole world of podcasting has exploded to a point where there's there's far too many podcasts out there, and a lot of the quality of it is is lacking.
1: Um, but well, that's that's why we're here to try and you know to to raise the bar a little bit. But uh, just on 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 fashion, I see you have bought. A new shirt, there, Alex. It's, uh, it's 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 good to see you really making a bit of effort. with Your uh, fashion sure, sense. no, we're so trying that... to get
0: out in the world uh, a little bit more, be mm. a bit more active, be a bit more socially engaged, and yep. a, a spiffy outfit is is a key element of doing that. So I'm looking like a million dollars today. Absolutely, looking like a million dollars, and that's that's going to be the subject of the hour is my my fashion <laughs> sense, which is
1: well, I just thought I'd just be a great opportunity to take the Mickey out of you for an hour, but no, I, I thought when we'll when you know we're very much we're just making it up as we go. So sort of bit of stream of consciousness, so to speak. But when I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, look, one of the things we often do talk about is, um, you know, we're almost obsess over is the the state of the left, um, you know, and mm. particularly the perf left, because that's where our experience has been. And perhaps rather than sitting here for an hour whinging and whining about, uh, you know, all the things we'd like to whinge and whine about, I thought maybe a good point to start was, you know, how we got involved ourselves in um, in this, you know this reality in this world of of political activism, left-wing politics, radical politics, you know, people call it what they will, Um, you know, and and I'm interested because, you know, we've known each other for going on, um, you know, over 20 years now, Mm. but I'm interested in some of your experiences, you know, prior to my involvement, I got involved in, you know, political activism around 2002, 2003, through the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and then the refugee rights movement, what you may talk a bit about later, but you were involved... Prior to that, you know, in in, in terms of, uh, I know you've told stories about Solidarity Park and some of those things. So you know, I, I, you know, I w- I've always kind of wanted to actually, uh, you know, ask you about you know how you got involved and 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 what what it was like back then. Sure. And again, I mean, in terms of the, the idea behind this
0: podcast, there's it, it, an opportunity to have these, these longer form discussions that really there's this precious opportunity to, to have these discussions anywhere. And I think that's actually <laughs> highlights one of the problems of the left today. Uh, but, uh, you know, long and winding story, Rain, and I don't want to make it about myself, but I think, um, you know, one aspect of, of this we can explore is the way the left has uh, changed in the whole social and cultural milieu of uh, the radical left in Perth has 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 transformed enormously over the course of the last 30 years. I um, mean I myself first got involved in in political activism in the mid 1990s. The first campaign I was involved in as an active socialist was uh, the Mururoa campaign against French nuclear testing in the, the Mururoa Atoll in the South uh, Pacific. And what's that was in July 1995 that there were rallies uh, uh, going on. And I joined what was then known as the International Socialist Organization.
1: And right, rather, but was that was that by chance? Or were you, you know, were you that at uni by, at that, the time? That, that was by chance. School? I was, so I was you, still in high school at that yeah.
0: time. So I was uh, a couple of weeks shy of my 17th birthday, mm. July 15th. I think it was the 15th of July, 1995 was the exact date at a an anti-French nuclear testing rally mm-hmm. and happened across Uh, A couple of comrades, um, Russell Miles and Tony Horn, from the International Socialist Organization, selling me a copy of Socialist Worker. I'd already had some familiarity with the International Socialist Group and their mother group in Britain, the Socialist Workers Party, decided to buy a paper. Was duly invited to a meeting in... um, I'm trying to remember exactly where it was, it was nearby the Court Hotel, um, a little bar in a side street that was closed down many years ago, the name of which I can't even remember in this sort of dusty, rather obscure, shady part of Northbridge where I had to go down a sort of a back lane to find this this obscure bar and I couldn't even find the comrades at first uh, at the meeting time but eventually I did find them and and well the rest is history in terms of my involvement in, in that particular socialist group for for seven years after that but that's That's a whole story we could tell, but i mean i think what what would be interesting for listeners is is the the whole if you like political universe and and the world of politics at that time in perth in nineteen ninety five and one thing I would stress is how much more vibrant and multi layered and multifaceted it was so i mean at the time of that uh, French nuclear testing campaign, there were a whole series of other uh, campaigns happening there was um, that was at the height of the campaign for independence and justice in East Timor where Indonesia was still a genocidal occupation force in uh, what was then the the Indonesian province of East Timor there's a very active campaign in solidarity with the people of of East Timor led by trade unionists led by veteran uh, anti-apartheid activists there were ongoing anti-racism campaigns. This was shortly before the rise of Hansonism and Pauline Hanson's maiden speech to Parliament in 1996, and that's a whole other story. Uh, that was one of the key campaigns I was first involved in, a successful campaign of hounding Pauline Hanson and her supporters all around Perth. There were anti-abortion campaigns. The free education campaign at universities was in full swing. Um, the the BLF had had was sort of still... Um, in its final throes, merging with the construction union around that time, so there was plenty of activity uh, on the construction sites. There was still a relatively healthy socialist left within the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. There was, um, you know, the old growth forest campaign was was at its height in the early to mid 1990s. Um, you know, trade unions were still. Active there. I mean, I, I could go on in terms of yeah. you know, just giving a picture. I think of, of just how much healthier things mm. were, despite, I should say, the, the the far left at that time as well. You have to remember on the negative side of the ledger. This is coming out of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and the collapse of a lot of those those groups and organisations that really, for better or worse, and in many cases worse, they were. You know, it's a, the, the the they were orbiting around the sun that was the Soviet Union. It's probably the best way I could put it, mm. orbiting around the sun that was the Soviet Union. So with the collapse of the old Soviet bloc in that 1989 to 91 period, it did set things politically into disarray. There was a lot of um, confusion and collapse and weakness of those socialist groups that had looked to the Soviet Union for inspiration. So I don't want to paint an overly rosy picture of the mid-1990s, but um, if you look at... The, the labor left and the, the state of the trade union movement and and campaign groups more broadly whether they were anti-racist anti-sexist, uh, you know the gay liberation movement and so on and so forth a whole sort of mosaic of um, groups and campaigns in a, in a kind of a, a social you know universe if you like that was there was a great deal healthier than it is now
1: yeah, and I'll we'll just uh, quickly correct you there. You said anti-abortion rights. I think you meant abortion rights. Oh, abortion rights. Sorry, yeah, pro- abortion rights. rights. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yes. Uh, and you know, there's a lot there that you mentioned that we could really look dedicate hours and hours to talking about. I mean, I think just the, the history of the BLF in itself could you uh, spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, you know, I'm mostly aware of the BLF through my uncle, who was a long time uh, trade unionist, and has told me a lot of stories about that. But one thing I'm interested in there, you, you know, you talked about that um the the mosaic of um, of groups, and you know, and there is this sort of this idea, and it, it is somewhat connected as well with something else you talked about, with you know the fall of uh, the you know the the USSR, and um, you know the end of that kind of traditional uh, left. There was the rise of what many refer to as the post-left or the new left. Who we were talking about earlier today, you know, attempts to uh, revitalise the Labour Party, and a whole bunch of things that occurred at the time. But it also ties into this sort of, uh, these, these politics of, um, that, you know, are made rather famous by people like uh, Hart and Negri, um, you know, the multitude and this idea of all these different campaign groups that working sort of horizontally together, you know, this concept of, well, you know, they and, you know, things we had, of course, um, you know, I'd like to talk to you about S11 and bigger anti-capitalist convergences around the world. And many people be uh, familiar with, of course, the Battle Seattle or... You know, the heart of the anti-globalization movement in in Genoa and, and, you know, because that's, for for me, that's what I kind of came into. I came into the tail end of that was, were these big movements where you had lots of different social campaigns, uh, social movements uh, around all those issues. You talked about women's rights, environmental rights, indigenous rights, workers' rights. Um, and you know, quite radical, uh, many of them. But you know, obviously uh, across the spectrum, from sort of uh, so-called social democrats and liberals and progressives, all the way through to anarchists and communists and socialists. But it, you know, in Perth, it, it sounds like there was a there was this, uh, perhaps in the mid '90s, beginnings of that that kind of um, political fabric. To what extent were these groups working together? Was there a lot of uh, hostility between the groups? Was there solidarity expressed between, you know, say the the pro-choice rally and the the workers' rights rally? Um, you know, to what extent were the unions supportive of uh, social movements outside of their bread and butter of representing their members? Another big issue we could talk about, the, you know, the death of unions in Australia, but you know there was a time in which you had things like the pink bands and the green bands and unions very much involved in social and uh, their social and political realities and in engaging in these social movements. To what extent were people working together? Yeah, it's a big,
0: a big question and a very important question, Ray. And I, uh, one uh, aspect of my response would be to say that, that those divisions that we're all too familiar with uh, today uh, among certain sections of the left in terms of what uh, campaigns we prioritise over others, what strategic aims and objectives we prioritise over others, all those divisions were there. So uh, a term that's, that's not uh, so often used these days is single-issue campaigning. So rather than uh, the left being fractured along what is now often referred to as identity politics lines, so you have sort of women's uh, roots, uh, rights groups and you have uh, anti-racist groups and so on and so forth, and often they, they don't uh, meet in the middle, so to speak. There were those divisions there in, in the form of, of single-issue campaigns, so it wasn't necessarily the case that... The, the free choice abortion campaigns you know had full trade union backing or vice versa that abortion rights activists would would come out on the picket lines for the BLF or, or the CFMEU. Again, I don't want to paint an overly rosy picture of that of the time because there were those, those divisions uh, in place, but I think there was um, an, an overall framework of unity over certain principles. Uh, I repeat that an overall unity of framework over certain principles. That I don't think we really have now on on today's left. So that meant that, for instance, if you were a feminist or an anti-racist activist, I would wager that there was a a, a very common, important understanding that, for instance, that you didn't cross a picket line, Mm. or for instance, that if you were a trade unionist, you had um, as as part of your makeup, as part of your um, sort of makeup as a trade unionist, you had basic anti-racist and anti-sexist principles. And and I think what I'm getting at there is there wasn't, whereas now it does seem that there is almost a sense in which you have to um, complete a PhD in gender studies or you have to go to university to, to familiarise yourself with the terminology of intersectional struggles and identity politics and to be sensitive to the needs and struggles of one particular group and, and this group and that group and so on. A lot of this stuff was... Maybe um, to a fault, not necessarily spoken about and codified in that kind of way. So it didn't have to be made. Um, it didn't have to be written down or, or discussed explicitly. These kinds of intellectual ideas and, and theories. I think that these were just common understandings that you, you do uh, you do join anti-racist uh, sentiments, or that you do you, that you don't cross a picket line. Um, that okay, you, if, if you're a trade unionist, you won't might necessarily go to that abortion rights rally, but you support abortion rights, broadly speaking. So that's perhaps not a very articulate way of saying that um, there were certain principles and values that where there was a, a shared commonality that I don't think is the case anymore. And I personally, this is my own particular political take on it, I think that was because there was, as I say, that overall framework of really I would say of of working class strength actually that was still there to a degree and that was uh in in the form of trade unions and the labour left so some of these and that so what's lost now compared to 30 years ago and, and and again I have to stress that this is a world that was on the decline in the 90s was that if you like for want of a better term the institutionalized left um which it maybe makes it sound like a bad thing when I say institutionalized left but that means Trade union structures, labour party structures, community group structures um, that had been in place for decades that were, you know, that were led by experienced militants of the working class had been forged in in all kinds of struggles down through the years, and that that kind of core of that institutional left was still there. But I, with my own eyes, began to see that um, decline. So, for instance, some of the working class militants involved jumping ahead a bit in the, the IR legislation, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll contextualise what I'm talking about here. In 1997, Graeme Keirith, uh, Richard Court's industrial relations minister, passed what was then known as the third wave of industrial relations uh, counter reform, which basically um, was trying to introduce individual ballots, um, secret ballots an uh, individual trying to risk, curtail the right to strike um, in, 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 in a number of ways, trying to introduce individual employment contracts into the workplace to, to essentially break the unions. Long story short, there was a huge struggle against Graeme Kilda's legislation culminating on the 29th of April 1997 when some 50,000 workers marched to Parliament and uh, basically besieged the Parliament and set up...
1: The Workers' Embassy on what, the steps of the Parliament. What I just quickly uh, mm. say, if you know, if people haven't haven't seen that footage, God, it's incredibly inspiring. You know, so it's, it's just even to I, it's one of those things I occasionally or look back on. I'll you know go along to uh, you know my favourite uh, video streaming platform and and look it up because it's 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 sort of impossible to even imagine. I think now, and that's you know that you know that's we'll, we'll we'll speak to, but it's incredible, absolutely incredible yeah, to see. I mean, you know, like just it, genuine. And again, we might get you know brandished as class reductionists, and I don't particularly like that term anyway. But genuine working class people storming uh, Parliament, you know, yeah. despite the fact that perhaps it, it had no real impact or effect in the long run, um, it, it's still very inspiring. Well, I definitely recommend people you know just watch the footage if nothing else.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, and it certainly did have an impact at the time because Graham Kiritt's, uh third wave of IR legislation was was defeated. Right. Uh, right. It, it was uh, made a dead letter. Um, and, I mean, it's a bit of a segue to jump to that, that anti-third-wave uh, struggle, which I would describe as the last great wave of working-class struggle in, in the state of Western Australia, leading to the establishment of, of, say, a Workers' Embassy on the steps of Parliament. It was later moved to, behind Parliament House, known today as Solidarity Park. Um, you know, I myself was camped out there, visiting there every day for for many, many weeks. Um, an epic struggle. But, and I, I, I mention all of that in, in the context of Again, to to highlight something that's been lost because I have vivid memories as an eighteen, nineteen year old going to the, the workers' embassy and in being involved in this uh, this struggle against anti union legislation, and meeting working class militants in their fifties and sixties. So these are guys, and they 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 were usually men, although some you know women as well, of course. Um, so these are people who had been um, in their twenties, thirties, forties in the nineteen seventies. Uh, you know, at the height of wildcat strikes and when there were Maoists and and Stalinists and anarchists and, you know, the Communist Party was still strong and there were, uh, you know, a wild um, time in the 1970s when the last really great period of, of industrial activity and strike activity. And so these were uh, men and women who, would in their youth um, or in the early part of their working period, had, had sort of grown up, had been trained, had been... Uh, um, you know, had their had their teeth cut in, in in struggle in the 1970s, and they were still around in the 1990s. They were still around in the 1990s. Um, which brings me back to sort of my earlier point in terms of the commonality of, of principles and values and a sense of social justice. I, I would argue it was all rooted in those older traditions, not necessarily restricted to the 1970s, but, you know, going back even further, the influence of the Communist Party, um, the influence of some of the great second wave feminist uh, movements, the gay liberation movements of the sixties and seventies, the environmental movements of the seventies, all of those earlier, you know, periods of struggle had, had, had shaped, shaped the period I of struggle. I first got involved in the 1990s in ways that were quite palpable and quite visible and, and quite, you know, quite discernible really. Mm-hmm. So, so, um, you know, I, I felt privileged as a, as a young man, really being able to speak to and meet with, you know, engage in struggle alongside people like that who'd, who'd um, you know, been trained as militants in an early period, and that, I suppose, part of the reason I mentioned all that is because, I think now about say an eighteen-year-old getting involved in the left, and where's that living link? where's that living link
1: with the historical memory and knowledge of the that, class it's not that intergenerational uh, knowledge so much and mm. that's an you know an important thing to discuss i mean something else that i do want to touch on also you know conscious of that we want to don't want to um you know we want to keep things a little bit light as well um obviously there was i think something that we share in terms of how we came to activism is those physical manifestations of social movements when we both came to it. So you say obviously those was a few years after you started going to demonstrations, but you had the the camp um, outside uh, Parliament here and you know what is now Solidarity Park and and that you know that people physically gathering. Um, and, you know, for me, it was uh, getting involved in the anti-war movement and we had the peace embassy opposite the U.S. embassy uh, down there during uh, the sort of the beginning of the big demonstrations against mm-hmm. the War in Iraq. Very different manifestations. And, you know, like, of course, uh, by that stage, we're talking about 2003. Obviously, there was, you know, the, the left had uh, suffered greatly as well. And, you know, there was it was probably perhaps more, you know, th- those that embassy there was very much run by students by a group that were both involved in Youth and Students Against War. There was maybe, you know, the left wasn't as healthy, but there were these big manifestations, um, you know, that as I'm sure many people listening, you'd hope, that actually attended some of the big, uh, you know, in, you know, the Palm Sunday rally where we had uh, 20,000 people, 20,000 people. around 20,000, yeah. maybe more, yeah. And, and then, you you know, you also had the, the, the Peace Embassy there. But, it, you know, it was also, uh, there was the, and I think this also speaks to, a thing I like about physical manifestation and physical space. There was there was madness, and it was you know, uh, it was something for me. It was so exciting to uh, to get involved in something where there's a bunch of people camping out opposite the U.S. embassy, you know, right there in the middle of the city, uh, surrounded by you know, sort of the you know the the suits and ties of, of the business district and then you know that you got that the, the, the fellow that had uh, stolen the bus I don't know if you remember him yes um, and you know would sort of drive around and he eventually got he got caught, you know drive drive around going to various karaoke bars and just running amok. I he do remember got, him. He got caught for uh, stealing his not only had he stolen the bus he'd also was stealing fuel from the transport. Yeah, depot. I mean, so we, we don't we don't but, want but, to
0: indulge the listener, whoever ends up listening to this podcast, uh, with too many personal stories, I guess. No, but, but, but I, mean, I think, I think that's uh, we met some colourful
1: characters. But at I that think time. that's what's uh, what's interesting because yeah. I, I think you know, and I will draw a, a you know a sort of um the, the political argument around this is that. Physical manifestation is something that's lacking now, and you know you, we, you know you know how much um my you know my favorite bugbear is sort of critiquing uh, platform capitalism or social media, but we live in a hyper individualized world now, where a lot of time people don't get an opportunity to to sort of to gather together and to work things out, and that's that's sort of part of it. It speaks to you know how you're saying that now you almost need a you know a post uh, doctorate degree mm-hmm. in order to understand a lot of the the language and the terminology that's um, you know surrounds the the cultural and social realities of the left, but at the time, it was very much even when I got involved, is that you know people working together and through struggle, through working together, uh, issues of, of racism and sexism and other forms of prejudice are worked out because people you know I, I remember many many examples of it that you know I remember like a, a good old friend uh, Roger you know what a what a great character this guy mm. that if you saw him on the street and he's he's stubby thuddy shorts and he's he's singlet. And sometimes with his, um, you know, uh, the carton of export over his shoulder right. and his, yep. his mullet, and you, you'd see him, and you know, in that stereotypical uh, lens. Now you think, oh, look, this guy's a, you know, quote unquote, bogan. And yet, the man spoke fluent French. Spoke fluent, spoke French, fluent French was one of the great politics, great activists, great anarchists. Uh, you know, was always there. His uh, his black Eureka flag on the front line, a uh, militant anti-sexist, anti-racist, mm. uh, you know, pro-gay uh, yeah. rights, fucking absolute gem of a man. Uh, but, you know, he is someone that was, in a way, I would, I would argue someone like Rogers, born out of struggle, born out of engaging with Absolutely. people in, in the physical realities. And we don't get that opportunity so much anymore. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I look, I guess going back again, sorry, jumping forward a no, bit no. there, but going back to to that time, you know, if you have any sort of particular... You know stories and experiences of of you know because in a, in a sense what you're saying you know despite obviously you have a, you know a significant theoretical knowledge your politics sort of come from you know these experiences of you know camping out in you know what is now known as Solidarity Park. Um, you know, were there any sort of moments or any sort of stories that come to mind that you know just you know maybe speak to the the excitement and the exhilaration of being a part of something like well, that? Well, I mean, you know? I mean one of the, there's there's many different aspects to that, of course, Ryan. Again, you know, you're
0: raising a number of important questions, but one of the things that comes to mind is that it's it's a two way street in terms of uh, earning people's uh, political respect and actually building f- bonds of solidarity with people. And I'm going to say something uh, quite controversial here, and you can you can take it to, or leave it. I think one of the differences now is there was an expectation or a whole series of preconditions and demands that a lot of activists will place on other people before they work with them, which is the exact opposite of the approach that was taken by the left uh, in the 1990s and around the turn of the millennium. What do I mean by that? So so to take one, one example, there is, um, you know, very much a key part of the left now is the trans rights movement, and of course Ray and I it goes without saying we 100% uh, respect trans rights and and will defend those rights uh, uh, to the death. You know, uh, trans people are our brothers and sisters, uh, like 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 anybody else. But and 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 one, one could think of any number of other examples. It's not isolated to certain trans activists. It could be certain feminists. It could be certain anti-racist activists. It could be indigenous. You know, there's a whole range of examples where. It seems to me that, that one of the things that is fracturing the left today is a set of preconditions are put on, let's say, let's just say for a hypothetical example, there's a trans rights activist group that wants to work with trade unions. There are many situations where the assumption is made before these groups work alongside each other that there is a problem that must be identified and dealt with and resolved on the part of trade unions because the assumption is trade unions are backward, and they do not have progressive views on trans rights or whatever, whatever the other issue might be. Now, that is going to create mistrust uh, and division from the outset before those groups have even worked alongside each other in, in whatever campaign group they, they hope to, they have to jointly um, you know, endeavor alongside. How is that different from my day? My day it was the old slogan we use was "Ideas change through struggle." Ideas change through struggle, so it was absolutely commonplace for all kinds of different people: black, brown, you know, white, brindle, male, female, whatever, old, young, uh, straight, uh, gay, all the rest of it. To gather for a common project, whether it was an, an anti-racist uh, a coalition meeting. For, I mean, I, I remember going to to free education campaign groups at university, where I didn't know most of the people there. Some of them maybe had you know, certain types of sexuality. Some of them were for this background. Some of them were from from that type of background. What's striking when I look back is that those things weren't foregrounded as politically problematic. Th- those issues simply weren't foregrounded mm. as politically problematic. Now, any any Interpersonal disputes that might emerge, you know, any insensitivities around a person's skin colour or their sexuality or their gender. It's not to say that those things um, didn't emerge in, in in political discussion and in the course of struggle. But that's the point: is they emerged in the course of struggle and any discussions and division uh, differences that needed to be resolved. Um, you know, were resolved for the most part through comradely rational political debate in other words it wasn't as though there was a series of demands placed on you know activist group x placing demands on activist group y and and vice versa um th- these were things that you you worked out as you went along now having said that i think the negative side of that is you know i think we can welcome these very open and forthright discussions about some of the the sensitivity problems or you know, misunderstanding problems on the left. You know, we hear a lot about lived experience now that, for instance, you know, a, a middle-class white anti-racist activist probably shouldn't really be involved in anti-racism at all, that some some people would argue, because they don't have the lived experience of a black person. Now, that's a legitimate discussion to have. Um, but it seems to me too many campaigns get bogged down in those discussions, which do lead to mistrust and division. Whereas, I mean, and this is putting it a little bit crudely, Ray, but when I think of any number of campaigns that was involved in the in the late nineties, you know, turn of the century period, quite frankly, and again, this is going to be a little bit blunt, a little bit controversial, the way I phrase this, but quite frankly, people just got on with the work. Um, and that, that just if I could sort of finish that point, Ray. I mean, that's on a more um, strategic level. I think one of the, and this is perhaps an oversimplification, but seems to me one of the major differences. is If you look at your average campaign now. They don't actually set out strategic aims and objectives. It's it's quite mm-hmm. striking to me actually. It's quite striking to me. I mean, I, every campaign I was ever involved in, really, throughout that nineties to let's say two thousand and five period, roughly, the first thing you'd do, as you say, you would physically gather in a space. You would get all the coalition of groups together. Literally, the first thing you'd do is you'd actually map out the campaign. Why are we here? Why are we sitting in this room? Why have we come together? What's the campaign objective? Who's our enemy? How do we define victory against that enemy? Okay, here's the set of objectives. Here's the work we need to do to realise those objectives. Let's all um, work together to formulate a common plan uh, to achieve victory. And any differences we may have, let's leave them aside. Mm. Any differences we may have, let's leave them aside. And I think that's fundamentally the difference, Ray, is that the focus then was let's get on with the work and deal with any differences we we may have. Whereas now it seems to me those differences are put front and centre ahead of... At, uh, they're put front and center at the expense of what those campaign objectives would otherwise be.
1: Certainly. And I, just quickly, uh qualify. I mean, you, you gave the example of uh, trans, right, trans rights activists and other activists. I think there are plenty out there now that don't necessarily take that approach. I think there's, you know, particularly, uh, you know, I'm aware of some in, in Nama or Melbourne, uh, very, very much, um, you know, trying to sort of to break beyond the... The, the typical sort of representational politics and really engage with people. So by no means do we mean to, you know, paint paint such a broad brush. And, 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 you know, I think there's a really, you know, some incredible uh, trans rights activists out there doing some incredibly good work as well. I do think wh- one thing, you know, that we talk about often and you're, you've touched on there is the, it's a sort of, I think it's twofold. There's, uh, we live in a hyper-individualised world, uh, made manifest often through, you know, social media, and in the fact that we are increasingly uh, sort of atomized and isolated through the ways in which we interact with each other, uh, and also the fact that, um, you know, politics, by and large, even though you may argue that it's always been somewhat performative is increasingly performative, that, you know, now if you are to organise a a protest or a rally or even, uh, you know, I say quote-unquote civil disobedience, because I'm not aware of a lot of actual civil disobedience taking place in Perth, but uh, often it's done so because people want to capture it, Uh, they want to to represent it online um, in some form. Uh, whether that be a video on uh, a social media platform or, you know, sort of trying to get uh, corporate media coverage. The, I guess, getting media seems to be, whatever that media is, seems to be the primary concern of most uh, modern-day activists, not just here, but the world over, really, uh, with some, you know, notable examples. You know, people we even interviewed on the radio show, and people we, I, I personally always try and preference, you know, those engaged in Direct action or, or in struggle that has, as we said, clear uh, material outcomes or object, ob- objectives. But I think you know, and I, you know, we can not to pick on anyone, but you can look at sort of you know movements like Extinction Rebellion, um, or even you know we were sort of commenting earlier that there was recently a student strike for climate, and you know it's it's sort of very much um, fallen by the wayside. And it's not even a critique of these people; it's just the culture in which those organisers live in is things are very performative now. And, uh, you know, I, I find it personally as, as someone who, you know, uh, been involved in uh, direct action campaigns through environmentalism or involved in the anti-war movement, the refugee rights movement, uh, when there were, you know, with their convergences at detention centers and there was a real, mm. you know, we had real material material outcomes and objectives to, you know, to end mandatory detention, to, to shut down off- offshore processing, to to go to the camps and to try and physically Break people out, and you know, and and people, you know, our fr- our friends were involved in that, and the incredible demonstrations in Woomera. Now it, it appears that there is this this idea that, oh, well, what do we do? We we create spectacle, and you know, perhaps a good point and um, or a good time to mention, you know, this this concept of hyperrealism and mm. simulacra and mm. um, you know Baudrillard's concept that people, in a way, it's like they they organize a demonstration or civil disobedience. And they sort of, in a way, mimic a lot of the the symbols that make up a protest. You have your signs, you have your speeches, you, you block the road, but it's mimicry without substance. It's you know, as, as Baudelaire would say, with the, of the hyperreal. It's it's a copy of a copy of a copy, to the extent where the actual. Okay, so what do we want to do? What do we, and I mean, and, and yeah. I mean. Granted, when you're addressing an issue such as a climate change or the climate catastrophe, it is quite difficult to know what to do because that is, in many ways, an existential threat. But it's like, okay, we're going to block a road because we want the government to take action on climate change. Okay, so we're going to sit down on the road and and people are going to get carted off and and arrested and we're going to get some good footage of it and you know we're going to get, we're going to make you know the corporate media and we're going to make make a couple of videos and hopefully they'll go viral. To what to what end? So we'll have another demonstration in in a month's time, and more people will come and we'll repeat it and you know, so we rinse and repeat and it's and it's a bit disturbing and i and i, I think of one particular moment and i look i I would also like to preface this, I have a lot of respect for a lot of extinction rebellion activists, and I think it's not of necessarily um you know of their of their choosing um it's just the culture in which they live that they do this but I remember uh you know sort of being being in the city not and kind of pretty much happening upon an extinction rebellion. Action And there was a, a group of people uh, in an intersection down there on uh, St. George's Terrace and they're blocking the road and they're they just sitting there and allowing themselves to be carried off. And as I've been carried off, the, the crowd is chanting, uh, thank you for your sacrifice. Mm. Well, you know, it has a whole bunch of sort of strange uh, religious <laughs> sort of cult, um, you know, uh, sort of um, meanings, perhaps, or mm. Uh, but it was kind of disturbing because you think wh- what what is the point what is the point it's what 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 are we achieving here you know I look I'm all for it I you know I'm in, I'm you know in terms of uh environmental politics and, and climate change I'm I'm probably even more more to the left and more radical than you on the, on those issues I I'm, I'm 100% you know I think we should shut down all fossil fuels you know in in a, in a you know sensible fashion but it's just difficult to know what what the direction is, what the organization is, what the, the purpose is of these movements. And I think it's because we are so very much captured by the hyper by corporate social media, by we're all atomized as individuals. We're not really working together and struggle where we're gathering for performance.
0: Yeah, and I think part of what you, I mean, there's, there's a lot there, by the way, right? There's you know, very useful stuff. And I think part of what you're talking about there comes back to my point about the the lack of clarity with why we're doing what we're doing. So you do have to start, I'm sorry, it sounds kind of boring and formulaic, uh, a campaign strategy, aims and objectives. And Extinction Rebellion, you could argue to their credit, they have a, a set of very clear objectives, one of which uh is, is to um, get the politics out of, of out of climate change, by the way, and to have basically a, a, a meritocratic um, technocracy to, to rule over us. So, anyway, that's I'm going off <laughs> off, off tangent there. But they, their politics are, are not great. But I mean, one of their demands is quite clear as well: net zero emissions by 2025. And to be slightly provocative about it for a moment, you're going to have to do a great deal more than having. You know, a few people um, flopping on on the road and getting ar- arrested uh, to achieve net zero emissions by 2025, which is now only two years away. And and I actually, I, I mean, I highlight that particular demand, one of a set of you know famous demands by Extinction Rebellion, because I, in the particular case of Extinction Rebellion, I wonder how serious the whole thing is, and I wonder whether uh, putting forward such outlandish demands and 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 adopting such frankly outlandish tactics and you know, deliberately getting arrested and occupying uh, city centres in ways that are often quite spectacular and dramatic. When they first emerged on the scene in London and shut down uh, major uh, city thoroughfares, we're all very impressed and inspired by by that activity. But as time has gone on, there is a sense in which I don't know that this is a group that is successful about campaigning for victory. And it's certainly not um, interested in uh, Mobilising and, and relating to larger numbers of, of people. And there is a performative element to it, and this is a whole other topic of conversation. There is many forms of contemporary activism that unquestionably has a, a sort of solipsistic quality to it, an egotistical uh, virtue-signalling, moral uh, one-upmanship quality to it, however you want to describe it. I think that is, uh, you know, whether we like it or not, it, it's it's a part of the left now, and I think there are a lot of interconnected issues with that. And one of them is what Ray's talking about, which is that we've moved away from materially based struggles. Uh, you know, there, there was, We used to talk about, this is an old fashioned Marxist term, the balance of forces, particularly in relation to the balance of class forces. So what is the balance of political power between the capitalist ruling class and the working class? But he'd extend that principle more broadly to, to any kind of campaign political struggle you are involved in. What is the balance of forces? I mean, I can think of a number of examples that come to mind where there were actually material stakes that could be assessed and measured and quantified. So your path to victory could be measured. Um, a very concrete example, you mentioned the great um, S11 movement, the S11 Alliance which, of course, S11 later, the, the date itself was hijacked a year later by the September 11th terrorist attacks on, on New York and the Pentagon. But in September 11th, 2000, a year prior to the terrorist attacks, 20,000 people converged in Melbourne for the World Economic Forum Asia-Pacific. And we stopped a third of those delegates, people like Bill Gates and uh, you know some of the richest people in the world g- gathering in Melbourne at the Crown Casino there uh, to discuss basically the expansion of neoliberal policies, trade policies, and exploitation throughout the world, we stopped a third of those rich and powerful delics getting into Crown Casino mm. that first morning on Monday, uh, uh, September 11, 2000. I'm going to just yeah.
1: quickly interrupt you there, Alex, before you, um, I know you you, know, you have a, a, a point to mm. make, but I, I think, you know, and I think we can talk, we can return to S11 at some point as well. But I just, I just want to know what it was like. What was it? Sure. What was it like being a part of? Because I I kind of feel I feel you know I you know I've I've got to experience some incredible things. I got to go out to Baxter Attention Center and participate in some of those demonstrations. I've got to do, you know, lots of little fucking covert things involving refugees or environmental uh, blockading and. Um, you know, I, I was just thinking as you were talking then, perhaps the only contemporary example of a really uh, healthy campaign I can think of in recent times was the uh, Row 8, Row 9 campaign that I was involved in. That's a totally different subject, but I've often thought, you know, because it was obviously uh, just a, a few years prior to me being involved in, in political activism, I've often thought, God, I wish I was at S eleven. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's to, yeah, yeah. just you know, talk yeah. us through, like you know, sure. give us, give us, paint a, paint a picture
0: of, <laughs> of what yeah. it was like, you know,
1: like personally for you, like you know, uh, there was the actual blockade. Of, of the venue
0: you know w- no it was fantastic look it was, it was a very inspiring time and I mean I, I don't want to make this all, all about me because I think it's important well, we're doing a podcast I'm happy to it? I'm happy to talk about my own experiences but I, I've always um, even just in, when I reflect on my own life I think about it in, in terms of the, the wider historical context no but I appreciate the, the question Ray and it was it was extremely inspiring and this um, in terms of that wider historical context it was at the height of the anti-capitalist movement you mentioned the Battle of Seattle earlier in November 99 when uh, there were there was street battles with uh, you know, the World Trade Organization was it was gathering there in Seattle. Uh, it, it culminated in Genoa in the, in the European Social Forum meeting in Florence that later led to the growth of the anti-Iraq war movement. But, and and the local manifestation of that anti-capitalist movement, the, the peak of it was the S11 uh, movement. It was months of m- organising meetings and all kinds of wild and wonderful and creative people. I mean, this was, you want to talk about a flowering and the uni- unity of the left, the kind of unification of the left that we don't see these days. I mean, you know, I have wonderful vivid memories. We used to have organising meetings at City Farm. We'd get 40, 50, 60 people, including members of the state security unit coming along. (laughs) Um, I remember once, the state security officer at one of these meetings, he was introduced himself as an earthling and said, my name's Mark, I'm an earthling. Sure. Well, that's
1: that's an interesting way to kind they of. Do. Uh, they yeah, do often. Um, we we had one in uh, the the Baxter convergence. And look, I feel terrible. I'm not going to say his name because still to this day I'm not entirely sure. I don't know. I don't know if you remember that the the fellow that he wore the uh, the Buddhist beads around his neck, and yeah. uh, and he was a you know he was one of these um, you know self development types. And I feel kind of feel a little bit bad because we never really had it confirmed. But I remember we were at you know the, the big. This is the 2003. Yes, the convergence, convergence yeah, what was yeah. uh, again you know I, one of the one of my great experiences of being out in, in the desert in, in in south australia at the Baxter immigration detention center what just to quickly uh, paint mm. a picture for our listeners mm. you know this is a was one of the most horrific detention centers that where the detainees um, couldn't even see outside they could only see the sky there was no you know they're in the middle of the desert in very hot difficult conditions you know Dude. we're talking uh, sort of it's, from vague memories, north of Port Augusta. Yes, that's um, right. And, you know, surrounded by uh, multiple uh, fences, razor wire, electric fences, this kind of thing, because this was sort of post-Woomera, so Baxter towards mm. the government's answer to the Woomera breakout. It's like, look, we're going to create this, uh, basically a maximum security prison. What was, you know, for me as well, experientially, I uh, talk about lived experience, that kind of mm. thing, but seeing mm. that detention centre... Sure, I mean, look, you know, if I'm perfectly honest, I kind of got involved in activism because I just thought it, I already had the, the politics, but the actual activism, yeah, I thought, this is exciting. The, adventure, the adventure, of course. Yeah, I'm still, yeah. still, you know, yeah, still I mean, somewhat honestly yeah. part of that. But But actually seeing it, the reality yeah. of the absolute... Yep. you know bar- barbarity the the bar- sorry, barbarism and the mm. the horrific nature of how we treat refugees well, and still I, so I, treat refugees yeah. in this country I, I, look, I think this, was was, yeah. was you know was made manifest and but but you know but I was going to say that the actual mm. the convergence was um incredible we were we were talking about uh, undercover cops but this fellow um who I won't name partly because I probably would would forget his name and get it wrong and and, and, and in <laughs> uh so you know probably uh what's the word yeah, but he essentially, this guy who travelled with us on the bus... Uh, was one of those kind of uh, yeah, earthling yogi mm. types and he would every morning he would go and chat to the cops and you know sort of almost so report it's a in. He'd oh, reported and we said to them, him oh, you don't don't what are you doing? He's like oh we just like just wanted to get their side of things. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. To get just to have a fucking cup of tea with them in the morning and just get their side of things. But yeah it was most certainly a, a police informant and uh, it was just sort of bizarre because he was, was aside from the Buddha beads around his neck you know he just looked like a cop. He had, mm. the, he had the crew cut. He had the you know the the sculpted physique uh, he definitely... I mean, you know, I guess you get hippies with sculpted physics, but uh, he definitely was uh, someone a little bit suspicious. But anyway... Yeah, you no, are no, I've, I've, we're I've sort of si- gone, I've gone sidetracked that, you a bit, a bit there, of yeah. a tangent
0: there, but no, we've certainly... Ray and I have both uh, met pen, plenty of uh, police informants over the years. That's probably an interesting topic in itself, actually, all the police agents we've met over the years. But no, look, I mean, we did go off on a bit of a tangent there, but it segues back or loops back to, to S11 because I think what Baxter and S11 have in common is, I mean, A, they were, they were grand experiences, adventurous experiences at a personal level, but... And just to finish off, you know that description of it. I mean, you want to talk about unification of the left. It was real um, and it was it was absolutely palpable during that time. I mean, you know, people from Greens backgrounds, environmentalists, trade union. I mean, just everyone under the sun would come to those organising meetings at City Farm, you know, 40, 50, 60 people. You know, I don't know how many people travelled from Perth to Melbourne for, for this convergence, but an incredible sense of purpose, an incredible sense of solidarity among, you know, and it, it, people talked about coming out of the Seattle uh, movement they talked about the unity of the Teamsters and the Turtles, the Teamsters mm. being the, 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 the famous Truckers Union in the United States and Turtles referring to um, activists who were you know, fighting to protect the the the, 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 the you know, conservation of, of sea turtles at the time in, mean, I think it was Oregon, I can't remember exactly. And, you know, th- th- some of that spirit, I think, uh, carried over to S11. It, I cannot begin to put into words just the... The, if you like cultural kaleidoscope, and you want to talk about cultural diversity, all these buzzwords: intersectionality, diversity, representation. Everyone was represented. All the diversity you could possibly want at S11. People dressed up in sumo costumes. You know, people dressed up in um, as as like drag queen police officers or drag queen police officers or. You know, just all kinds of dressing up and costume, and 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 um, you know, hip hop music being played, and bands playing, and um, international groups were there, and just and, and the actual protest itself was would take many hours to talk about because it was. It was basically an entire city block around the Crown Casino Complex, and there wasn't simply one picket line trying to stop delegates getting in. It was multiple picket lines across the entire Crown Casino Complex. It was basically, you know, a couple of city blocks, and particularly on that first Monday and also into the Tuesday, the 12th of September, and I've never felt this had this feeling prior, before, or since in my life, a feeling of actually people controlling the streets, mm. a feeling of, of ordinary people actually controlling the streets. So we actually controlled that small part of Melbourne for three days. Um, whether you wanted to call it a temporary autonomous zone, you know, I don't really care about the terminology, but, but believe you, I was there. I felt it. It was real. Um, 20,000 ordinary people converging across the country, basically shutting the Crown Casino complex down, stopping these rich and powerful people getting into the, into the complex, including the Premier Richard Court, who was left high and dry um, by a group of Indigenous activists who held up his, his car. John Howard, I think, did get in on that first day, but through speedboat. And um, there were people getting in on helicopters. No, people were getting in on helicopters. It was madness. I mean, it was a real pitch battle and a real struggle. And yeah, we had real control over the streets for three days. Now, linking, linking that S11 experience with what you're talking about at Baxter and there's a number of other examples I could give, um, I think what, what sets those sorts of struggles apart is is there were real material stakes involved. Mm. There were real material stakes involved. I mentioned that on that first day, we could actually quantitatively measure the fact that one-third of these delegates to the World Economic Forum Asia-Pacific Summit did not get into the mm. meeting. Uh, you mentioned the the Woomera uh, outbreak of 2001. We can concretely point to the fact that X number of, of refugees actually escaped from that centre mm. and therefore made the... Howard government's system of mandatory detention of asylum seekers at that time, untenable and ungovernable. And, and the just, system was ungovernable. And, and I mean, just on that, some of those refugees are still living and peacefully they, in places like They managed to get like to the Zealand United Kingdom yep. um, through
1: false documents in some yep. cases.
0: That, and that it, 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 know,
1: was, it was an example of actual uh, direct action that... Had had a material outcome and aim and achieved it.
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's you know one of the the main points to to stress here, Ray, is um you know we can get caught up in the romance and the adventure and 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 those are all great, but also that's that's that sense of unity, that sense of purpose that was there in 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 Backstair at at S eleven and so on. Um, but you can you can extend the principle that I'm that I'm talking about here to a number of other campaigns where. And I'm probably repeating myself here, but that that it strikes me as one of the key differences. Those objectives were first of all properly mapped out, and then they were assessed, and they were measured, and they were quantified. Whereas now, getting back to you, what you were saying earlier, one has to question what all of that that the, the social media focus is about. So a, a really obvious example is not just extinction rebellion per se, but the climate change movement generally. Um, you know, you mentioned that the school strike, I I wonder what direction it's going in because there seems to be a total lack of strategic direction. And, and this is a very broad overgeneralisation, probably, but that just, there are too many people on the left who are satisfied with uh, cultivating their own image, whether it's their own image of moral perfection of, of political, um, you know, correctness of, uh, thinking the right way of saying the right things at the right time. Um, And again, I would contrast that with the period when I was sort of up and coming, and we don't want to turn this into things were done better in our day, although I think (laughs) they might, by and large, were done better in our day, to be quite honest. But, um, you know, that sort of thinking was certainly very alien to us. Again, the focus was always, the focus was always on the work at hand. Um, And I was taught as a young man that politics is about what you do next, or politics is the next link in the chain Mm. of struggle. Um, you, You... you take yourself seriously, um, but you probably don't take your own needs that seriously because, frankly, and I don't care how old-fashioned this sounds, you sacrifice the needs of yourself as an individual for, for the greater good. That is just mm. as hackneyed as an old-fashioned as that sounds. That's the way I was brought up as, as a young socialist, and that was the way I was, was taught, and that's my attitude to this day is – and again, I'm being controversial – is that if we want to talk about people's feelings and sensitivities – I'm all for that discussion. I truly am all for those discussion. But frankly, if those discussions get in the way of, let's say, freeing asylum seekers, let's say stopping rich delegates getting into, into a hotel complex, let's say um, you know, preventing scabs from crossing the picket line, sorry, preventing scabs from crossing the picket line is more important than your individual feelings and sensitivities. And that, that's, a, that's a one way of summarising, I think, the, the, the generational differences we're talking about.
1: And it's not to say that, uh, you know, in this, if if we continue this podcast uh, after, you know, if if we're still alive after this issue. No, um, you know, I think, you know, feelings and and emotions are are still important and it's still, you know, we we do things also for ourselves and we have touched on that as well. And the fact that those experiences were exhilarating and empowering and, you know, it's sort of, it is part of it. And I think it's okay with accepting, and we might differ on this, we might accept it's okay to be involved in in struggles and, and movements. In part for yourself as well, but I I did just. uh, There's a couple of things I was thinking of. Then we've probably, um, you know, we've been rambling for for some time now. But uh, there's a couple of things that I just wanted to mention in the fact that, uh, well, two things. One that you know, uh, from S11, seven years later, we had the APEC uh, summit that I don't, you know, I think myself and a a couple of other comrades went along to. I don't think you actually came along Mm -hmm. to, to APEC in Sydney. And what uh, sort of night and day differences? And I and I and I do want to point out because you know it would be quite easy to sit here and, and, and blame um, liberals for everything. But I think there's there's a couple of things that uh, that that APEC um, experience of being at that convergence, and if, you know, if people are, are too young to, to remember or just or just missed it at the time, perhaps uh, was made most famous. Probably by the the, the chaser, um, you know, getting mm. the, the limousine into the controlled zone, dressing and up as, dressing Son as of bin Laden. Bin Laden. Yep. For me, the thing that sticks out about that there was, at the last minute, the police had changed the route of the march, and uh, we had a we had a mass meeting. Some five hundred people attended this meeting, as to whether or not we were going to accept. This changed route that would not take us uh, close to the, you know, the actual, because um, you know, the entire city was sort of locked down into different zones, mm-hmm. and we'd initially intended to march towards where the actual conference was uh, taking place. Last minute, the police had changed the route, and there was a. There was a meeting called to discuss whether we are going to challenge this or not. Uh, remarkably, uh, you know, and I was very much struck down the middle between uh, groups such as the the DSP or DST, as they'll call it at the time, uh, saying, no, we should just go along with what the police are saying. And then groups such as uh, Solidarity that I was in at the time and uh, anarchists and Autonomous and so forth saying, no, we have to challenge the police. You know, we we at that meeting we won the vote. We said oh, we're going to challenge the police line. We're going to you know make a make a stand, sit down, and um, you know sort of refuse to um, to accept the, the changing of this march. What you know would have been in part a symbolic action, but still an important action considering how much people's civil rights had been impacted on during the APEC conference. On the actual day, and uh, I won't mention his name, but uh, you know, a notorious uh, DSP uh, activist was the MC, and you know, with the support of the firefighters' union, who were very much, um, you know, in coalition with the Social Alliance and DSP at the time, decided to not announce this action and continued on their um, you know, very sort of performative rally, uh, and, and those of us that did sit down put it put at risk and and some were arrested and in the end it all led to us being uh kettled in a park and many people and particularly organizers arrested and the police very much played us but the the, the quick point i was going to say is that you know you, we can't uh while we might focus on some of the the liberal elements that have contributed to performative mm. protest we also have to take into consideration particularly around things like the anti-Iraq war uh, demonstrations the role that some socialist organisations oh, no have doubt. played yeah. Um, yeah. and you know not to be unfair to Socialist Alliance and DSP I mean we were both previous members of Socialist Alliance but some of those activists they, they very much contributed to this this culture of let's put on an anniversary you remember the anniversary rallies to the war in Iraq sure. they became these sure. performative spectacles a quick trot around the block a few speeches You know, started with maybe uh, the first year a couple of thousand people. The next year, a thousand people, five hundred people, two hundred people, and it just became it became became total uh, yeah a total exercise in futility. And it also contributed to this culture of performative protests. Mm. That like let's hold a let's hold a rally and get some speakers Mm. and. For what? For what? Yeah. And just because it's the anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, just because it's uh, you know it just happens to be th- this this day, it's it's Palm Sunday, it's it's what we'll hold a rally, and it just becomes it just becomes a social gathering.
0: Yeah. We we are reaching the one hour, Mark Ray, and I think this is um, a, a good topic to to end on actually, because in some ways it does unite all the different threads that we've discussed today. Um, we, we've spent a good deal of time, or I've certainly spent a good deal of time. Um, highlighting some of the, the strengths uh, of the left in in Perth in the 1990s around the turn of the millennium and you, you've now um, you know brought up some some of the weaknesses which I think is a good point to end on and I think it actually connects with some of what we've talked about as well in terms of those new forms of struggle whether we want to dismiss them as performative or otherwise that we have to actually um, give encouragement to and, and be fair to to young comrades let's say people between the age of 18 and 24 or 29 now who who do spend a lot of time um, d- d- distributing memes on Facebook and and gifs uh, and and posting rally photos on Instagram and using whatever newfangled technology, much of which I've never even heard of. Now, we can be derisive and dismissive of those of those tactics that it is performative and that it's indulgent and that it lacks strategic focus. But I think what you've just brought up is is a reminder that actually. A lot of those new forms of activism are not just products of of new forms of technology, but they're actually a conscious rejection of old ways of doing Mm. things, of the the traditional stale march around the block, the traditional stale rally with the with the uninspiring uh, cardboard um, slogans written on cardboard. And so on and so forth. So I think we have to view 21st century, um, you know, Gen Z activism with all of its faults and problems and, and, and inadequacies as, you know, potentially something very exciting. And I think mm. part of the, the reason for this discussion and, and indeed this podcast is I'd like to think hopefully uh, bridging that, that gap between crotchety old... Activists like ourselves, who you know maybe have one or two useful pieces of advice for younger people, bridging that gap with, with, with the younger people who, yeah, maybe they are getting things wrong. Yep. Maybe they are spending too much time on Instagram and on TikTok and on Facebook and and all the rest of it. But it may well be the case. In fact, I'm sure it's the case. I'm sure it's the case that they have just as many lessons to teach us as as we uh, do to teach them.
1: And that's a good that's a good uh, note to end it on. And you know, we don't we don't really know what we're doing with this. We're just we're just talking nonsense. If you found it entertaining. Please, you know, do do let us know, and uh, you know, we might even get some some of the younger activists and younger people. There this you is maybe our next yeah. one. We'll
0: get a um, some token twenty-two-year-old in the studio to, to teach us all about <laughs> no. Maddie's but uh, TikTok. look, look, and and no, 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 we don't, And also,
1: there's no uh, no specifics to this. We will just talk about whatever we feel like at the time, and, and hopefully it's enjoyable. Uh, if it's not, oh, you know, let us know if we're wasting our time, and we will, we will stop we'll stop doing it but if you if you enjoy it then we will mean, it's all, would, you it's know, all part of uh,
0: it's all that's part it. of our lived experience and I hope you've enjoyed it <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed
1: it I feel like I've been the Flavor Flav to your uh, your Chuck D here so Chuck D you, absolutely. You, you've uh, just dominated but uh, you know we'll turn things around next week uh, that's, it. that's it that's it that's it I hope you've enjoyed it take care <laughs> take care <laughs>